This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the question that we'll try to answer tonight is, how many friends should I have? One of the ironies that mark modern life is this. As technology has multiplied for us the ways to communicate, as media has defined itself as social, more people report feeling alienated and isolated from others. This wasn't supposed to happen, at least according to the media companies who make communication easier. They have poured billions of dollars into putting tools of communication into every office, into every home, and even into every pocket. It turns out, however, that multiplying short, digital, and mostly anonymous communication does not suffice to create connection, much less affection, between human beings. As people communicate more, as they communicate all day, in fact, and often into the night, they report having few or even no friends. Truth to be told, friendship has suffered culturally for some time now. In art, in the academy, in politics, friendship represents a forgotten topic. Artists rarely depict it. Scientists and intellectuals rarely study it. Politicians rarely promoted. Our culture has lost its taste for friendship, at least according to how our grandparents and great-grandparents would have understood and lived it. Friendship as a school of virtue has become old-fashioned. The few types of friendship today that seem to catch the culture's eye are those that cloak vice, especially of a sexual kind. Our newspapers and our novels obsess over human relationships tinged with sexual interest. Our culture today, from Broadway to boardrooms to classrooms, fails to appreciate friendship beyond a means to sexual gratification. Just consider how The Lord of the Rings was written 75, 80 years ago. Game of Thrones just 10 or 15 years ago. It was not always this way. Since its foundation, Western culture has prized friendship as natural, necessary, normal. The ancient pagans and the early Christians agreed that no one can live without friends. Many friends, in fact, and of various kinds. Human life is a shared life, they recognized. Life is not worth living, at least it is not lived well, without sharing it with others. No man is an island, John Donne wrote at the dawn of modernity, echoing the wisdom of the ancients. Even some, some of today's best lyricists repeat this truth. My friends are goals. We fly, why cry, our souls exposed, yeah. We smoke, we laugh, your stress, my stress, closer than can, I'm blessed, you blessed. Whoever can name the source and author of that gets a free beer after the talk. Since the time of the apostles, friendship has enjoyed a privileged place in the Christian life. Think, for example, of the many mentions that St. Paul makes in his letters of the names of his friends, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Tychicus, Epaphras, Onesimus, Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila. These are just a few of the people with whom St. Paul shared his life and his mission. 
We can point to other examples. One friendship especially remembered in the Christian tradition is that between St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory Nazianzen. In the liturgy for their feast day in early January, the church reads a letter of St. Gregory in which he describes his friendship with St. Basil. What St. Gregory describes in this letter remains a model for Christian friendship. And let's take a look at that text together this evening. The excerpt that the liturgy reads begins, Basil and I were both in Athens. We had come like streams of a river from the same source in our native land. We had come like streams of a river from the same source in our native land, had separated from each other in the pursuit of learning, and were now united again as if by plan, for God so arranged it. Right away, St. Gregory places his friendship with St. Basil, or at least he tries to understand his friendship with St. Basil as part of the mystery of God's providence for his happiness. God mysteriously arranged that Basil and Gregory were born in roughly the same place. They were compatriots. But life separated them for a while, but that the pursuit of learning brought them back together again in another place but where they could reconnect and become friends. God likes to make friends, according to St. Gregory. Gregory goes on to describe the development of his friendship with Basil. I was not alone at the time in my regard for my friend, the great Basil. I knew his irreproachable conduct and the maturity of his conversation. I sought to persuade others to whom he was less well-known to have the same regard for him. Many fell immediately under his spell, for they had already heard of him by reputation and hearsay. Gregory describes that his initial attraction to St. Basil as a friend was his goodness and the pleasure that Gregory derived from being in his presence. It was goodness, it was virtue, it was pleasure that was the initial attraction, not vice. Notice also the non-possessive character of Gregory's initial attraction for Basil. Basil's company was not something that he had to keep all for himself. Gregory's first instinct was to share the company of Basil with others. Gregory knew that the good that he saw in Basil was something to be shared with others. He continues, what was the outcome? Almost alone of those who had come to Athens to study, Basil was exempted from the customary ceremonies of initiation, for we, he was held in higher honor than his status as a first-year student seemed to warrant. Basil was quite the hotshot, apparently. But notice how Gregory continues to delight in the achievements and the gifts and the honors of his friend. He celebrates the achievements of Basil. The achievements of Basil are not for him or for Gregory a source of envy or of jealousy, but rather something to be rejoiced in, again, shared in, shared with others, in delighting in the gifts and the talents of Basil. Gregory does not focus inordinately on himself or his own self-interest, or his own self-benefit. Rather, the achievements of Basil, the honors of Basil, he considers, in a way, as his own. Because they're Basil's goods, Basil's honors, Basil's achievement, in some way they're also Gregory's, and he recognizes that. And so he continues, such was the prelude to our friendship. 
the kindling of that flame that was to bind us together. And this way we began to feel affection for each other. When in the course of time we acknowledged our friendship and recognized that our ambition was a life of true wisdom, we became everything to each other. We shared the same lodging, the same table, the same desires, the same goal. Our love for each other grew daily, warmer, and deeper. What Gregory describes here is a beautiful, in a beautiful way, is just the simple development of friendship. How attraction and appreciation leads to affection and eventually love. This love then becomes the very foundation, the very bond of the friendship that develops. And how do you know it's friendship? Well, Gregory tells us, because the two friends, Basil and Gregory, began to live a common life. They began to share life. They lived life and pursued the goods of life together. They lived a common life, sharing the same table, sharing the same lodging, fostering among each other the same desires, pursuing the same common goals. These friends lived a life together. They shared life together. The same hope inspired us, Gregory continues, the pursuit of learning. This is an, an ambition especially subject to envy. Yet between us, there was no envy. On the contrary, we made capital out of our, uh, out of our rivalry. Our rivalry consisted not in seeking the first place for oneself, but yielding it to others. We each looked on the other's success as his own. Gregory signals a note of triumph here because he knows that there are many risks in friendship. There are many risks in trying to live a common life with another. There's a risk in pursuing the same goals as one's friend. Why? Because, well, rivalry will naturally arise. One will naturally be better than the other in the pursuit of the good. But what's to happen in friendship? Is that to become the reason for envy and jealousy and discord? Or is the love of friendship such that it can incorporate that rivalry, incorporate that inequality between the friends to the pursuit of deepening their love for each other and the sharing of life together. It's the latter, of course, that Gregory notes, obtained in his friendship with Basil. In friendship, we love the other as another self. We love the friend's good as our own. And it's that mystery that can elevate and perfect inequality and rivalry in friendship. Such that, in fact, there is no rivalry, there's no competition regarding the individual goods as the friends who, instead of counting the differences between themselves, delight in and celebrate their common pursuit of the common good. We seem to be two bodies with a single spirit, we cannot believe those who claim that everything is contained in everything, yet you must believe that in our case, each of us was in the other and with the other. Gregory begins to speak of his friendship with Basil here in near nuptial overtones. The two become one in a way. Not in such a way that the two are blended into each other where each loses his own identity in action. They don't become everything in everything, which was the doctrine of Anaxagoras that, that Gregory's referencing here, 5th century BC. 
Greek philosopher who came up with this theory to explain how change is just illusory. Everything is always the same and forever change and development are not real because everything already contains everything. And whatever appears to be change is just everything being and becoming everything. Gregory says that was not our friendship. I remained Gregory, he remained Basil. But in the unity of our friendship, we were as one, of one mind, one heart, one love for the truth, united in the common pursuit of, the, of virtue and of God. Our single object and ambition was virtue and a life of hope in the blessings that are to come. We wanted to withdraw from this world before we departed from it. With this end in view, we ordered our lives and all our actions. We followed the guidance of God's law and spurred each other onto virtue. It is not too boastful to say we found in each other the standard and rule for discerning right from wrong. For friends, the friendship that they share becomes a means to the pursuit of virtue, and in the life of grace becomes a common means in the pursuit of salvation. Gregory and Basil discovered a great mystery of the Christian life and of the life of grace, that we're made to have companions in Christ, friends in Christ, not only with Christ, but friends in Christ. We're meant in the life of baptism to develop the life of the theological virtues together. To seek all of the integral parts of the Christian life together. Friendship itself being one of those integral parts. As social and political creatures made in the image and likeness of God to share life with others, we do not pursue salvation alone. Grace heals and elevates our social nature, our social character, unto being friends with God and friends with each other in God. Within the communion of charity, that is the church, the love that we have for all in charity, develops into real friendship with a few in charity. Different men have different names, Gregory says, which they owe to their parents or to themselves, that is, to their own pursuits and achievements. But our great pursuit, the great name that we wanted, was to be Christians, to be called Christians. In the life of conversion, friends are for each other sources of consolation and encouragement. Here the friend is a living measure of one's own perfection in the life of grace, a measure of perfection in one's own imitation of Christ. We would do well to ponder often the grace and beauty of Basil and Gregory's friendship. 1,700 years after they lived, their friendship remains a model and a measure for our own friendship. But there is a temptation here that we must avoid. Just as today, the only friendship that seems to interest our culture is the sexual one. So we can become interested only in the spiritual one. In other words, we can so desire the highest form of friendship that we neglect to develop the other. In the Middle Ages, St. Elred of Riveau composed a treatise on the Christian life and on Christian friendship, particularly that, if read incorrectly, can suggest that the only friends that we should make are heavenly ones. For example, and this is the passage that's included on your handout, 
This is that great and wonderful happiness we await. God himself acts to channel so much friendship and charity between himself and the creatures he sustains, and between the classes and order he distinguishes, and between each and every one he elects, that in this way each one may love another as himself. This means each may rejoice over his own happiness as he rejoices over his neighbor's. Thus, the bliss of all individually is the beatitude of all together. There are no thoughts there, no thoughts are concealed, and no affections disguise, meaning in that friendship, which he's talking about in the communion of saints. The true and eternal friendship that begins here on earth is perfected there in glory. Here it belongs to the few, for few are good, but there it belongs to all, for there all are good. Here, where wise men and fools brush shoulders, testing is needed, but there none is needed, for an angelic and in some ways divine perfection makes everyone happy. Henceforth, let us compare to this model the friends we love no less than ourselves, for as all their secrets are revealed to us, so we disclose all ours to them because in everything they are firm, reliable, and steadfast. Do you think any human exists who does not desire to be so loved? No, in fact. We all want to be loved this way, with the love of the saints. And it is the love that we should all aspire to in the friendships that we make. Every Christian should strive to develop the friendship that St. Elred describes here. It was the kind of friendship that, enjo- that was enjoyed by Saints Basil and Gregory and by so many other saintly pairs in church history. But as St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us, when it comes to friendship, the perfect should not be the enemy of the good. The perfect should not be pursued to the exclusion of the imperfect. Following Aristotle, Aquinas recalls that human life is ornamented by a variety of friendships. Not all equal in value, but all necessary to the flourishing of human life. In book eight, in book eight of his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle writes that there are three kinds of friendship. The friendship of pleasure, the friendship of utility, and the friendship of virtue. All three are distinct because they have different ends, and thus they require different loves. Only the last the friendship of virtue, represents friendship in the proper sense, and only it can endure through the whole of life. Still, the other two kinds of friendship represent imperfect kinds of union and require imperfect kinds of love that are still unions and loves nonetheless however inferior they are to the union and love of virtuous friendship. Aristotle writes, There are three kinds of friendship corresponding to the objects of love. In each of these, a recognized return of love is possible, and those loving can mutually will good according to their love. That's Aristotle introducing The fact that all three kinds of friendship are just that, friendship. One may be friendship in the perfect sense, but it doesn't mean that the other two are not friendship. Why? Because in all three kinds of union and relationship, friendship in the proper sense exists. It's there. For in all three kinds of relations, the good can be wished to another. And the good is wished to another. Three different kinds of good, to be sure, 
but good nonetheless. And so in all three relations, the friendship of pleasure, the friendship of utility, the friendship of virtue, you formally have what distinguishes friendship from other kinds of relationships. Aristotle continues, of those who love one another for utility, one does not love the other for one's sake, but for the good that they may mutually gain. The same is true for those who love for pleasure. For friends like these do not love witty people because of their character, but because they are pleasant companions. But those who love for utility love for the good they get, and those who love for the sake of pleasantness love for the pleasure they enjoy. These do not love a friend because he is a friend, but because he is useful or pleasant. Therefore, these friendships are incidental. For man is loved not for what he is, but for some advantage or pleasure. Aristotle is clear. Friendships of utility and friendships of pleasure are inferior forms of friendship. He doesn't try to hide the fact. He recognizes it plainly. These two kinds of inferior friendship do not love the friend for the friend's sake, but for one's own sake for some good that we derive from the friend. Still, Aristotle observes, we wish friends of utility and friends of pleasure good. And they wish us good. As a result, friends of utility and friends of pleasure become companions in life. As long as the utility and the pleasure that they provide lasts. And thereby, the burdens of life are mutually lifted. Aristotle continues, perfect friendship, however, is friendship between men who are good and resemble one another according to their virtue. For those who are alike in virtue wish one another good inasmuch as they are virtuous, and they are virtuous in themselves. Friends who wish good to friends for the sake of their friends are friends in the truest sense. They do this for the friends themselves and not for something incidental. Friendship between such men remains as long as they are virtuous. When St. Thomas comments on Aristotle's observations here, comparing and contrasting the friendships of pleasure and utility and the friendship of virtue, he's careful not to oppose the friendship of virtue to the other two kinds of friendship. Rather, this is important. He sees how the perfection found in the friendship of virtue takes up within itself and accommodates the imperfections of the friendships of pleasure and utility. After all, Aquinas says, each friend is good not only simply or in himself, but also in relation to his friend, because those who are virtuous are also good without qualification and useful and completely pleasing. It is obvious that the friendship of virtuous men comprehends not only good in an unqualified sense, but also pleasure and utility. As the perfect form of friendship, the friendship of the virtuous takes up and includes the friendship of pleasure and the friendship of utility. Aquinas doesn't hide or neglect their distinction, but his first instinct is to see the union and relation among the three. That their distinction does not lead to their dissolution or disunity, but rather their distinction becomes the very principle of their unity. As imperfect is related to perfect. 
A lesson that we can draw from Aristotle and Aquinas' teaching on friendship is that we should not exclude developing friendships of pleasure and utility simply because we hope to develop friendships of virtue. In fact, applying Aristotle's and Aquinas' wisdom to our lives, we should commit to developing friendships of pleasure and utility because we wish to develop friendships of virtue. On the one hand, the imperfect friendships of pleasure and utility serve as stepping stones to the perfect friendship of virtue. This is clear in the perfect friendship achieved by Saints Gregory and Basil. Gregory, in fact, described the progress through utility and pleasure to the perfect friendship that he enjoyed with Basil. On the other hand, becoming perfect in the imperfect friendships of pleasure and utility develop in us the spiritual palate so that we might enjoy in its full flowering the friendship of virtue once it is established. But the friendship of virtue contains within it also the qualities of pleasure and utility. So again, cutting our teeth in a sense on the inferior forms of friendship, we make ourselves capable of not only establishing, but then enjoying the full flowering of virtuous friendship once we achieve it. So to answer our question this evening, how many friends should I have? The answer is all of them. We should have all the friends. At least we should have all three types of friends. We should have men and women in our lives to whom we wish the good for the pleasure that they give us, for the utility that they provide us, and for the virtue that they share with us. Not all three kinds of friends are loved in the same way, nor do all three kinds of friendships possess the same endurance and stability. But all three coexist and are related as imperfect to perfect in order that the fullness of the goodness of human life may be discovered and shared. Thank you. We have a little time for questions. I'm happy to stay for a few minutes to answer. Yep. Uh huh. Right. Okay. So the question is, how can we be friends with Christ? We can't. First and foremost, I mean, we can't make ourselves friends with Christ, but it's rather the mystery is what we read there in the Gospels. Christ makes us his friends. Part of the mystery of friendship is that it's not built on the affection that two persons or the two friends have with each other. There's something that has to precede that. There has to be a reason for and a foundation on which their communication and affection you know, are built or you know, in that something that, that, that affection can take root. Aristotle recognized it, Aquinas repeats it, that there has to be some sharing, what Aquinas calls a communicatio, in some good that establishes a relation between the two persons before they even begin to speak to each other. So that there's something shared between two persons that they come to discover. And it's the discovery of this shared thing that then becomes the principle of whatever communication, conversation, is going to be, in the sense, the first steps towards their friendship. So in terms of our being friends with God or friends in Christ, what in the world do we share with God that can serve as the foundation of friendship? Well, absolutely nothing. There's nothing that we have naturally that we can turn to God and say, here I am, be my friend. I mean, it's, it's absurd. God takes the first step here. 
not only in creating us and giving us a share in his being, but that's not enough to just that I am and God is in two very different ways. That doesn't establish enough of communicatio in order for us to be friends. God turns to us, even in our sin, as St. Paul reminds us over and over again, and offers us a share in his happiness. God gives us, offers us a share in his own deity as some shared thing that creates a communicatio, a community between us within which we can come to know and love each other as friends. And so sometimes it's quite clear about this, that it's in the communicatio of beatitude that we can even begin to speak of becoming friends of God or God making us his friends. And that's what Christ is revealing at the Last Supper and so many other places in the Gospels. I no longer call you servants but friends. Why? Because I've told you everything that the Father is doing, which is offering you a share in his life, offering you a share in his own happiness as your final end and goal, something you don't merit, something that's not owed to you but given to you graciously. All you have to do is accept it. And in accepting that, being introduced into the life of grace, living in that communicatio of beatitude, which begins here on earth, it's fulfilled in glory. That's why charity is the virtue given us by which we live in this friendship with God, that we return to him the love that he offers us, which is what we call charity. That's why the friendship that God establishes with establishes with us now on earth, Aquinas reminds us, is the same that will endure forever in glory. What we possess imperfectly here as pilgrims on the way will possess perfectly, you know, as comprehensors, com- yeah, comprehensors of the, of the divine nature, you know, in glory. So we can't become God's friends, but God makes us his friends, you know, by grace through the instrumentality of the sacred humanity of Christ. It's in the life of the church, which is the extension of Christ's body throughout the world that we're incorporated into as living stones, as St. Paul says, living members. And it's in that that we can speak about friendship with God. And then by extension and fulfilling the double command to love, it's not only that we love God for God's sake, but also our neighbor for God's sake. And so that's why something like the friendship of Basil and Gregory can you know, emerge in human history as something stupendous. That it's, it's the living with another, like us, the unique relationship that God in friendship has established with us. So that's kind of part of the, the whole mystery of, of Christian friendship. Yeah, Jay. <laughs> so what's due to another? What does justice and friendship look like? Well, Aquinas says it doesn't look like um, doesn't look like what we'd expect it to. Friends don't go on judge duty to kind of work out, you know, their friendship. Uh, no, enemies do. <laughs> you know, people who who have competing claims against each other. Um, whereas you have you know an arithmetic kind of one for one, you know balance of justice that you're trying to, to, uh, to, to achieve. Friends don't live that way. Friends don't count the cost in that way. We want lots of people to count the cost. Otherwise, life would be chaotic. You know, if I'm selling something for $20, I want somebody to give me $20 for it. You know, uh, and we agree to that price. And you know, that's how we get along in the world, especially with the stranger. Friends, though, it's different. Because there's a shared life, and because what's my friend, what my friends is my own, and what is mine is my friends, well, kind of the relations of justice start to look a little different. And it's for this reason why Aquinas says that even in the family, where blood ties, you know, are more important than, let's say, the bonds of real friendship, or we would recognize as friendship, even there, justice looks different, you know. Aquinas says, well, I mean, the, the son who goes to his mom's purse and takes out $5 without asking, is he a thief? Well, 
in a certain sense, yes, he's taking that without permission and trying to do it clandestinely without his mom knowing. But Aquinas recognizes at the same time, well, that $5, because it's part of the, the common wheel of the family, is the kids in a certain way. So he's only taking what's, in a sense, already his. So you, you know, you don't, uh, I mean, you might, for disciplinary reasons, <laughs> you know, correct that kind of behavior, but it's not the same as the same kid going to a store and lifting five bucks out of the, ca uh, out of the cash register. That's more proper you know, theft. So, so because in human relationships, where there, are, where there is shared life, where there are shared goods, what's owed to the other uh, is not tit for tat, but more along the lines of, of liberality and in total giving, total self-giving, uh, you know, to to the development and the sustenance of of the friendship. Now that always has to be mutual, and it has to be in a virtuous, you know, friendship. Um, you can see this going terribly wrong in friendships of mere pleasure or friendships of mere utility. Um, but in real virtuous friendships, um, yeah, the the balance of of justice is, um, I don't want to say ceases to be a concern, but it, uh, its contours are very, are very different. Liberality and gift-giving become the measure of justice in, in friendship in a way that that doesn't obtain in the public square. Yeah, in the back. Right. So loving the enemy, what does that require? Does that mean you have to become friends with the enemy? Um, no. Uh, on the one, well, no. And why? Well, because Aquinas says in charity, yeah, whereas you know, friendship might be the goal. Uh, and that's, friendship is that relationship within which charity is lived really intensely. Uh, Aquinas recognizes that it's impossible to love everyone in that way. We're limited creatures. We live in a particular place, particular time. There are only so many people we can fit in a room. You know, you can't love everyone equally all of the time. Nor does charity demand that, simply because of its impossibility. Aquinas says that we're always to be ready to love in charity, especially the stranger who's in need of our love in some way, especially an act of mercy or of beneficence. But those with whom in charity we're going to develop real relationships with and friendships with are those that are closest to us, you know, beginning in the family, but also those with whom we share the same civic good or the political common good or the same profession or the same... Uh, sports interests or, you know, these kinds of things where there has to be, again, something shared in life beyond the fact that you are a human being and it, you've been given charity. Something has to serve as the, the foundation of a, of a friendship, establish some kind of communion between the two of you that you discover and then develop in friendship. Aquinas says that charity is simply because it's charity doesn't neglect these real distinctions that we find in the natural world, the natural order. Those two were created by God for our good. Uh, and charity elevates and perfects them, all of those distinctions, under the exercise of charity. So in regard to the enemy, it's not that we are to become friends with him, because charity doesn't require that we become friends with everybody. But in loving the enemy, what charity requires is that we love in the enemy what is good, about him, that he is a son or daughter of God. They're capable of conversion and grace. God has destined them too for beatitude. But I hate in the enemy that which remains in him or her, which remains opposed to God. And that's what I can actively, you know, not only resist, but, but work to correct in the other. And that's how, for Aquinas, how, you, how he understands you know, that we fulfill that command, two things at the same time, right? It's the command to love God above all things, 
and our neighbor as ourself, and, you know, to love our enemies. At the same time, he says, hating our parents <laughs> and others. So, but it's the same, the same rationale, the same explanation he gives to, to, to understanding all of those commands in the Lord, which at first glance appear completely contradictory. But Aquinas shows us a way you begin to scratch below the surface and you see how there's a unity in Christ's teaching uh, based on a realistic view of what, what in fact charity is. There's another, yeah. Ooh, I never thought about that. So are the persons of the Trinity friends? Um, no. <laughs> Why? Because there's a unity among the friends in the Trinity that transcends the union that exists between friends, I would say. For the same reason that we can't be friends with ourselves, the, mem the persons of the Trinity aren't friends with each other. Does that make sense? <laughs> I might be a heretic for saying that, but uh, I don't... <laughs> to look at a little more Trinitarian theology, uh, but I think that would be right uh, because of the unity that the, that the persons enjoy within the oneness of the divine nature, that the distinction among the persons isn't, in a sense, absolute like it is for, for you and me, but rather uh, a distinction of relation within the ones, oneness of substance, uh, I think the unity that they, they enjoy transcends what it is that we know as friendship and even transcends what it is that he establishes with us as, as friendship. Yeah. Right. So what, what political order arises out of, yeah, the, kind of the pursuit, the social pursuit of, uh, of friendship? Um, I'm not sure it demands any one particular kind, uh, but that whatever it is, is going to recognize uh, not only the higher goods in human life, but also set up a political structure and a system of law and justice that that points the citizenry in, in, in that direction. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think that's, that, that, that's what I'd say there. I, I think it's achievable by kind of the three, or however, many, however you want to divide them up, uh, kinds of, uh, of government. It's just going to look different and be harder, easier, you know, according to various systems. Uh, um, yeah, it depends on what, what that, how you understand kind of the best and most virtuous way to achieving that end would be, you know. For example, can virtue or friendship even be commanded? I mean, can it be an object of law in that sense? You know? um, probably not, but then how is it that you establish a public order such that the citizenry is encouraged through their own individual prudential action to achieve and will pursue and achieve the goods, the goods of friendship. Again, of all different kinds, because you need to govern friendships of utility. I mean, this is the business world, right? It's the life of contracts. It's, you know, uh, bringing people together not that they remain strangers in their economic exchanges, but you would hope that there's a kind of friendliness that, that arises you know, in, in the world of business or economics, trade, finance, all of these things. You know? uh, I mean, the contracts are there to serve as the foundation and you know, the expression of mutual agreement between the parties, but it doesn't mean that they remain strangers after that, that there are ways in which you can still wish the good for the other in a kind of affective relationship with a business partner, for example. Um, same thing with, with friendships of pleasure. 
I mean, why we go to the movies, why we go to you know, sporting events, you know, and those things because of the pleasure that we derive from watching them at their activity or, or craft. Again, they don't have to all remain strangers, but we can achieve a kind of, you know, life of benevolence with each other as not only with the players or the actors, but with also the people in the stands or the, or the theater too, that, uh, you know, there's, there's reason for, you know, friendliness, you know, in those, in those situations. And, and the political order can be set up to, to support those. Uh, what it would look like, though, to support, like, virtuous friendship, well, that, that would be a little more difficult to imagine. Um, but, yeah, a regime that, that promotes and supports marriage, you know, in its integrity, uh, in its truth, I mean, would be one kind of, you know, political structure, legal structure that would, you know, point to, to that uh, fostering and, and, and preserving that kind of friendship. One more, okay? On the side here. I think we've been trying to answer that question for a long, long time. So, um, can men and women be friends in this way? Um, in principle, yes. And I think you've, you've seen, I mean, the church, you know, the life of the history of the church witnesses to some of these friendships. Uh, they're among celibate people, <laughs> for the most part, at least the ones we've come to know and recognize and that the church holds up as examples for us. Um, but I would say, in principle, yes. Uh, the difficulty is, is, of course, we're all fallen creatures. Uh, even in the life of baptism, all of the, the effects of the fall are not removed from us. So whatever friendship we pursue with members of the opposite sex, uh, yeah, has to be pursued in a kind of prudence and, and caution that, that would uh, make room for, for uh I don't want to say just temptation, but uh, for misunderstanding and, 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 and all, all kinds of things like, uh, like that. Uh, I think there are ways that families and societies develop that, uh, that create the right kinds of social structures and right kinds of environments within which men and women uh, can, can become friends, share friendship. But uh, yeah, that's going to you know, look a different, uh, in different ways. Um, I would think that married people probably have a perspective on this that could be interesting not only in their marriage do they uh, experience a particularly intense kind of friendship, but it's not the only kind of friendship that men and women can, can, can enjoy uh, and develop. Uh, and that within the home and within the context of a marriage, friendships with, with both sexes can be, can be uh, developed and, and pursued. So... Yes, but cautiously. <laughs> right. Okay, thank you.